0: So with the new year upon us, 2024, uh, the first Sunday of the new year, I preached a message that I called New Year, Same Word. And I I wanted to get the year just kind of started with just some some foundation, some basics, some reminders. And so the first Sunday of the new year, New Year, Same Word, to emphasize to the church that, hey, you know, with the new year, there's new things that come. New, new, you know, new medicines, new vitamins, new workout trends, new this and that. But uh, as it relates to what we're going to be doing in the new year, it might be a new year, but we're going to be on the same Word of God. Trust that. In the evening service of the first Sunday of the month for Vespers, the message was New Year, same prayer. We are going to be committed to prayer and to Scripture in the new year. On the following Sunday, the second Sunday of the month, my message was New Year's same plan. And we surveyed some of the epistles to see the emphasis in them to the church, reminding the church that the wisdom of the world and the ways of the world which are always chasing after new things are antithetical to the mission of the church, the plan of God for the church, which is to stay the course in the ministry of the gospel. It, it might be a new year, but we don't have a new plan. We're going to keep doing the same old thing over and over and over. And this launched my little mini-sermon series for the month of January 2024 that I'm calling Same Old Thing. The point of the series is to remind us and, and get us excited that we are in a church that is is, is is not going to go off course. We are going to stay the course. We are not taking a turn on Change Boulevard. We are going to stay right here on the old street doing the same thing over and over. Now some would say that doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. But I would say to you that that's not the case as it relates to the mission of the church. Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is actually our definition of fidelity, not insanity. Yes, I expect a different result. I expect God to move as we do the same thing, as we pray, as we preach, as we operate according to His plan. So someone was asking me, uh, you know, the last Sunday of the month and this whole same old, same old thing that you got going here, Pastor Matt, what's going to be the the capstone on it? How are you going to end it? Uh, What's going to be the, you know, sort of the final thing that you're going to remind us that we should be doing the same thing for in 2024? And jokingly, this person said, maybe you should do a, a, a New Year, New Problems message, you know, <laughs> New Problems. Because surely, as a, as a church, living life together, you know, we're, we're all a bunch of sinners. And so we, we sin and we do things and we drag the world in here. And that's a, you know, it's a part of, of being a church. It's a part of being a family. So how about, how about a New Year, New Problems? And immediately, I, you know, my mind went to Corinthians, and, you know, there's all these problems going on there, and Paul's addressing it in the Corinthian letters, but even as I was studying and thinking about the possibility of doing something along those lines, as I'm reading Corinthians and other texts that come to mind, they're really not new problems. They're the same problems that just keep happening, you know, and so Paul in the Corinthians, he's like, hey, I told you in my last letter, like, knock it off, you know, why, like, why are you still doing that? You see, it's A new year, but it's the same problems. Well, that got me interested in terms of thinking, well, what is new in the new year? Which led me to the final installment that I have for you today because I think there is something new that we need to think about and give thanks for. Uh, So today's message is New Year, New Sundays. Uh, God has graciously given us a new year that is filled with Sundays. And these Sundays are special and they are new. They are not the same Sundays of 2023 or 2022 or 2021. He has, he has given us graciously a year full of Sundays less, uh, while the Lord tarries. And while we have breath in our lungs, he has given us a number of Sundays that are left in the year to work through, to sanctify us, to grow us, to stretch us, to change us. And I'm quite excited about that. And so in today's message, I want to end this whole same old, same old thing with an emphasis on what is new in the year. And what's new in the year is the Sundays that God has given us. Uh, Last week's installment of the series, I did New Year, Same God, reminding us Uh, uh, that God doesn't change. We looked at the doctrine of immutability. We went to the book of Psalms, and in the book of Psalms, we saw how these various authors in the book of Psalms emphasize various attributes of God. In addition to immutability, we looked at His omniscience, His omnipotence, and so on and so forth, really to just remind us that we we have the same God who's carrying us through the new year, and in the new year, we have these new Sundays to worship this same God Uh, Last week we were in the book of Psalms and I want to pick up in the book of Psalms again this week. So if you would open up your Bibles to Psalm, the book of Psalms, find your way just to the opening of it and I will direct you in a moment. So in today's message I want to stir in us an excitement for the Sundays that God has remaining for us today and those left in the new year. Once you get to the book of of Psalms... um, you, you, your eyes are going to start getting drawn into the text. By way of introduction, the Book of Psalms, uh, in the original Hebrew, was entitled Tehillim, which means praises. The Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Tehillim is where we get our word Psalms uh, from, psalmos. This book is a praise book. It is a rich well of theology, but it is intended to be used as a as a praise book. It's a it's a song list. It's iTunes. It's Spotify or whatever you use to, you know, to consume your music on. Remember, what was it, Napster? What was the, the gangster one where everyone's just stripping mus- music off of it? Uh, this, is, this is your playlist. This morning I want to talk about Sundays and I want to focus in on what we do here on Sunday, namely worship. And the book of Psalms is a book that is central through the ages for God's people in their corporate worship, so it is a fitting place for us to be. Uh, since we're talking about Sundays in worship, it's important to define terms. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the word worship is derived from an old English word, worth-ship, meaning the acknowledgement of worth. So worth-ship is the acknowledgement of worth. It It, it, it is, it is a placing a value on something. When you go to the store, uh, there's price tags on things, and... And you go, oh, that looks nice, I want to buy it. And then you see the price tag, Oh, oh, I'm not going to buy that. Why? Because it's not worth that. That's too much. Or you go, oh, that looks nice, and you get the price tag, and, it, and it's actually quite reasonable. You say, I'm going to take that because I think it's even worth more than that. You see, to ascribe worth is to ascribe value. What we do when we worship is we're ascribing value to God. In addition to mental acknowledgement that something is valuable, and the resultant behavior that follows someone showing that they believe it's valuable, such as purchasing a thing. Worship is also an act that is marked by passion. The Oxford Dictionary also states that worship is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity, great admiration or devotion. So worship, to make sure that we're all on the same page here, is this passionate action of expressions of reverence where our admiration and devotion is shown in a way that reflects how much we value God. Worship is really, in a biblical sense, much more. It is a way of life, a way of thinking, and it is expressed in in faith and truth and repentance and obedience to our God, involving various ordained spiritual rituals and godly disciplines and loving habits that have been handed down to us through Scripture. That said, today I want to talk about worship not as... uh, acts of individual habits or discipline. Uh, But more specifically, I want to talk about our corporate worship, which we do here on Sundays. Speaking of corporate worship in the book of Psalms, draw your eyes at Psalm chapter 4. Do you see the subscription there in Psalm chapter 4? For the choir director on stringed instruments. Uh, Turn the page if you need to, unless you have Psalm 5 on the same page. Notice the subscription there. The superscription, the, the choir director for the flute accompaniment. A Psalm of David. Uh, t- turn over to Psalm chapter 8. Again, you see the choir director. Right? On the kitith. Psalm 9 for the choir director. On the muthlabim. As you follow through the book of Psalms, you're going to see this uh, repeated in various Psalms. Psalm 11 for the choir director. Psalm 12 for the choir director. Okay. And then you're going to notice other psalms that are individual psalms. So worship is both individual and corporate. They're, they're both important. And today's emphasis that I have will be upon the corporate. Now, I have you open the psalms, and I'm showing you those, those, those titles there just to familiarize yourself with the text. And in, a, in a bit, we are going to turn over later in the book of psalms. Uh, we're going to get into the hundreds in just a moment. But just keep, keep your Bibles there. And by way of introduction, I want to introduce the theme for today's message, Coming Prepared on Sundays. Under this uh, first point, you have a sub-point here. Readiness is crucial for experience in life and worship. This ought to be self-evident to us. That is, as we study uh, preparation in worship today, the practice of readiness ought to be intuitive to us. Worship is about ascribing worth or value, right? As we just covered. Okay, Preparation is an activity that we do that shows we value something or someone. We prepare for things we value. If a guy takes a girl out on a date, a girl that he likes, he prepares. He's got to get his riz ready, as my kids would say. If a a person values good grades, they prepare for the test. If a person values winning in an athletic game, that person prepares, they practice. And all of the discipline, sacrifice and readiness shows the value in the thing that they're preparing for. We do this intuitively in life and so we ought to in worship and specifically, which is today's topic, talking about uh, new Sundays in the year and preparing for these times of worship that God has given to us. I think we need to begin with an understanding that Sunday was important to our Lord and to His disciples and followers thereafter. Comfortable North American Christianity seems to take this for granted. We vacation on weekends, not weekdays. Because we are a culture with idolatry around career and cash, so we will not miss work, but we will miss worship. To be clear, if you travel on a weekend for something, I mean, that happens. I I mean, we're not going to be legalistic with regard to this, but I see what I'm getting at is I I see that people in our culture don't prepare in advance for it. Uh, That is even finding a church that they could attend while they are out uh, traveling, making sure that while they are out of town, they are still in worship and still giving prominence to the significance of Sunday. Whether our modern behavior or personal schedules reflect it or not, the fact is, Sunday is important to the Christian faith. Sunday was special. It was special. Believers in, in, in the time of the New Testament referred to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Now, of course, every day is the Lord's, but Sunday was viewed as special because it was the day on which Christ was risen from the grave in, 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 in victory over sin and death. In the New Testament, we see John, for example, refer to Sunday in Revelation 1.10 as the Lord's Day. And we see this day tied to Sunday in other New Testament texts like Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, which shows us that Sunday was the Lord's Day in Scripture and thereafter in history. Now, to be clear, the Lord's Day was not the same thing as the more ancient day of Shabbat, or as we say, Sabbath, that the ancient Jews before Christ and early Jewish Christians observed. The more ancient day of Shabbat or Sabbath was held on Saturday since the time of Moses... ...who in writing the creation account of Genesis depicted God at rest on the seventh day of creation, a divine Shabbat. Now, of course, God was not resting out of fatigue. We discussed God's omnipotent last week. God wasn't fatigued from creation. Oh no, God is omnipotent. He is never tired. Rather, this divine Shabbat, this divine rest was the completion of the work of creation, that is, cessation. Simply put, he was done creating. Rest is a metaphor of completion. You rest when the work is done. Hence, God rests on the seventh day. It's a metaphor of finality. Now, in like manner, under the law of Moses, the promised people of Israel were to rest, Shabbat, and to do so on the day of Saturday to acknowledge their covenantal relationship with God, expressing his value. That's worship. In addition to worship, Shabbat served as a social... A uh, 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 mechanism uh, uh, in Israelite society to undermine unjust practices in labor, such as exploitation and overworking from the upper class to the lower class, the strong taking advantage of the weak in that regard, so everyone is to rest, everything's supposed to shut down. Upper class, lower class, strong, weak, masters, slaves, everything shuts down. Zooming ahead in history from the time of Moses, the great prophet and Messiah Jesus comes living under the Mosaic Covenant and he obeys Shabbat. He obeys not just Sabbath laws, but all aspects of the law, the Torah, in its civil, ceremonial, and moral dimensions. He perfectly obeys the law, which prepared him to be the spotless lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of his people. The people who have not obeyed the law of God, who then stand as transgressors of the law of God, who stand at odds with God, need one who can provide for them a perfect track record, and this is what Christ has come to do. He does just that. He obeys the law perfectly, and then He dies as a sacrifice, and and to boot, He rises up from the dead, showing that His sacrifice took, that His life was righteous under the law, and that He can give us His righteousness in exchange for our guilt and shame, as having violated his law, and he victoriously displays this on what day of the week? Sunday. Because of this, the ancient followers of Jesus celebrated God's work in Christ weekly on Sundays. His Jewish followers still would have observed the Shabbat uh, because that was a part of national law if you were living in the Holy Land. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus had become a Sabbath rest for his people Yet living in the land of Israel in those days, it was still civic law, so they still observed Shabbat. And then on Sunday they would gather after their rest to come prepared in worship of the Risen One. Uh, Failure to observe the Shabbat in the first century as they were writing the New Testament, failure to observe the Shabbat would have not only injured their witness in that culture, but it would have gotten them in trouble with the civil authorities. So they rested on Saturday with the culture, And they worshiped the Lord on Sunday in a rather counter-cultural way as they came together to be this new thing called the church in the New Covenant. Worship on Sunday became more prominent as Jewish Christians faced persecution in their synagogues and in the temple, which you can read about in the book of Acts. But persecution did not stop them from meeting on Sundays. Ancient Christians died for, for worshiping on Sunday for three centuries. It is important. It was that important to them that they would risk their lives for this. In fact, when the persecution ended 300 years later with the Edict of Constantine, just before the Edict of Milan, in it we see that Sunday was acknowledged in these edicts as their day of worship that should be tolerated. Uh, Without getting into the history of Constantine and the theological and political errors and evils of this era, I share the history only to note that it was historically recognized fact that the ancient church saw Sunday as sacred. Martyrdom did not erode the church from meeting on Sundays. As Tertullian wrote in the 100s, and I quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The knife on the throat of the ancient church could not stop them from making disciples and meeting on Sundays, as disciples in local churches committed to their weekly corporate worship. I heard a statistic yesterday at a, a pastor men's conference, one of the speakers shared that the average faithful church attender in North America, the average faithful attender in North America attends church once a month. Twelve Sundays, just once a month. That's the average. It is no wonder that the church is losing ground in the culture. In the first and second century, uh, beyond the writings of the New Testament, we have Christian texts like the Didache. Uh, In the 14th chapter of the Didache, we have writings about the importance of of Sundays. We have Ignatius' letter uh, 9-1 that talks about this. We have Justin Martyr who wrote in his Apologies about Sundays. In the third century, we have Tertullian Cyprian writing about Sunday as the Lord's Day. History shows us that the Christians saw Sunday as a sacred day of worshiping Jesus and this passed down through the sands of time, which is how and why we're here today. It is passed on to us moving down to the introduction here readiness is crucial for experience in life the New Testament calls for us to prepare and have a ready heart of worship for the church gathering the people it wasn't just that Sunday was special but through the week they were preparing for Sunday we see this in places like 1 Corinthians 16:2, which I'll put in front of you the preparation for them in their offering when they gather on the first day of the week Sunday in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, I'll put that in front of you. It also talks about them purposing in their hearts. This is behavior beforehand to come prepared and ready. Before the gathering, there was to be a purposeful preparation of the heart. In the book of Acts, we see this preparation in the church, not just in giving, but also in studying the Word. We see, for example, in Acts 17, we read about the Bereans who are studying the Word in preparation and in response to worship, namely the teaching of the Scripture. So we see that the church is preparing for Sunday by fellowshipping together during the week, reading scripture, singing, praying, and being the church throughout the week is a part of preparing for them to gather on Sunday. They prepared for communion. The leaders were prepared to preach. The people were prepared to receive. We read in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, I'll put it in front of you, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Intending to lead the next day, he prolonged the message until midnight, it says. And you think my sermons are long, right? Uh, Look at him go. Uh, Look at him go. Uh, The verse shows intention. If you're going to go that long, you've got to come prepared, man. He gathered in worship with intention. As a result, the worship was rich. It lasted all night. Without finishing the chapter, suffice it to say, it was an exciting evening. This is the fruit of people being changed by the grace of God into worshipers who come prepared to worship. We understand that the church's worship did not appear in a vacuum. You see, the church was born in the promises of Israel's Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The worship order and the leadership of the worship community is shaped by the Hebrew Bible, which is why we're in the book of Psalms. And if you would, turn from the opening of the book of Psalms to Psalm 120. And in a moment, we'll start digging into the text. The worship order and the leadership of the church, it comes from God's people Israel. The worship community, the elders, the synagogues, the synagogue means a gathering. So their structure, this is where the DNA of the church comes from. They had synagogues, their synagogues were gatherings that met weekly, they had elders, they had preachers. It's it's all the stuff that we have today. They had worship services like ours with elders teaching scripture, people singing, taking offerings, saying prayers and doing all sorts of things during the week in their synagogue buildings to prepare for that corporate gathering. The early church met in synagogue buildings before oppression set in, and then Christians began moving from synagogue buildings to renting buildings, like the Hall of Tyrannus that we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, sometimes where they didn't have ability to rent a building, they would just meet in larger homes by, uh, of congregants within their uh, congregations. So just like in the days of old in the new the people were gathering and they were preparing for the gathering and that's what makes it sweet because in life in life you prepare for what's important to you moving down the outline we we have talked about readiness being crucial for experience life and worship we've talked about the new testament texts that call us to prepare now see we get into the old testament as you have turned to psalm 120 And we're going to see how the worshipers were preparing as they gathered in the building of the temple. We've covered a lot of history, particularly history of the church. We've considered some of these New Testament passages along the way. Um, And so now that we are in the section of the Psalms that I, I want to exposit, we need to move from thinking about Acts and New Testament principles into the days of old with God's people Israel. In the days of God's people Israel, if we're in terms of the context of Psalms, they would gather in corporate worship in Jerusalem at the temple. And we're in a section of of the scriptures of Psalms that talks about preparing them for that worship gathering, which is going to give us some principles for, in this new dispensation, new age, for our gathering as the temple of God. In our public reading of Scripture this morning, intentionally, we, we, we had a reading from Chronicles that talked about the building of the temple. And then we jumped over to Ephesians where we read about how now we are the temple. And so we see from the principles of that physical temple, we can apply things to the principles of us as the new temple in Christ. Moving down to point two on your outline, reflecting on the readiness of Hebrew pilgrims, the section of Psalms that we have turned to is a section known as the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, these are songs that were written for God's people Israel as they were coming to worship at the temple. So these are psalms the, that are inspired by the Holy Spirit to help prepare God's people before they gather so that when they gather, their hearts are ready. Uh, this designation of the songs of Ascent or the songs of Going Up Uh, Some refer to it as the gradual songs, or the songs of the steps are, are all getting at this reality of approaching the temple and being ready as you approach for your worship. So, in this section of the psalms from 120 to 134, you have these psalms of ascent. Scholars tie these psalms as well to the 15 steps on the side of the temple. So, so many, as they're journeying to get to the temple, they would be reading these psalms, singing these psalms, reflecting on these psalms to prepare themselves for the gathering. And even when they get to the temple, there's a section, if you look at the picture here, that has uh, steps that go up. These are the pilgrim steps. And they then would rehearse them on each step as they approach the temple. You travel a long time to get to the temple, then you reach the steps and you read them again to prepare your hearts. Uh, here you have these ancient steps that are ascending to the temple and you can, uh, you can imagine sort of, you know, being there and getting there after a long journey. Uh, keep in mind, you know, they, they don't have cars. It's a long journey. It's stressful. It's dangerous. Uh, for those of you with small children, you know what it's like traveling with small children and just imagine that you can't put them in the car and buckle them in and, you know, uh, give them a tablet, right? You know, you're just out in the woods with kids and there's wolves and there's... Gangsters and crazy stuff, and you're like, "Oh man, where's Ob?" Ah, you know, it's it, it's intense travel, it's intense travel, and God inspired for them this section of scripture. So that as they're stressed, as they're traveling, as they're worried, as they're anxious, moving through terrain that is rough, dangers of wild animals and wicked men who lurk in the darkness of night, you have these psalms that are saying, don't worry about any of that. Don't worry about the stress. Don't worry about the darkness. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Just have your hearts ready to worship God. It really trivializes my worship CD in the car that I might play as I'm driving to church. Yes, I said CD. And I have a tape cassette still, so keeping it real. I got a cassette tape that I put in that has a little audio jack on it that I plug into my iPod, because that's my newest piece of technology, which no one has anymore anyway. But, you know, you get in the car, throw on a little worship, you know, get here, honk at someone or whatever, trying to get your heart ready. It's It's really trivial when you think about how they would journey to get to the temple. Psalm 121, verse 1, look at the text. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? The mountains around Israel. As they're approaching the temple. They would see. They would walk in and through them. We, we read in Psalm 125 twenty-five two as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people both now and forevermore. The mountains are beautiful. They're seen as a picture of God's love for His people as one watched over them and helped them. Look at Psalm one twenty one verse two, where we left off. Where does my help come from? He answers, My help comes from the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. The journey to Bethlehem, as noted, was was was, was not Jerusalem. Excuse me, was tough and dangerous. Not only dangerous, but the hills were a place of idolatry and paganism. On the hills, people would uh, place statues to 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 pagan gods, and and they would build temples to pagan gods and. And they would, they would engage in all sorts of, of, of horrible rituals like temple prostitution and human sacrifice and sexual perversion on, on the hills, on the mountaintops. The worshiper passes through this on the way to the true God. He passes through hills of paganism on his way to the true God. Perhaps he is even staring at an idol on a, on a hilltop in the distance, which leads the psalmist to say, where does my help come from? And then he answers himself, my help comes from the Lord, who's the maker of them hills over there. He's the maker of all of this. He stands over all of this. That's where my help comes from. It comes from Him, who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. The point is that God created e- everything, even the hills. He made it all, and whatever He has made is in His control. Hence, there is protection, there is safety for the worshiper who is seeking to prepare his heart to worship the true and living God. Psalm 125, verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be shaken. He endures forever. Isaiah fifty-four ten: Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Looking at your outline, reflecting on the readiness of the Hebrew pilgrims, you have A, Psalm 121, the protection for the pilgrim. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you. Verse 3 He will not allow your foot to slip, he who keeps you will not slumber. What is the text telling us here? It is telling us, as you see on your outline, that you are safe. Those who put their faith in the Creator need not be concerned about their safety in their pilgrimages. In verse 3, there is a promise of safety. The psalmist declares that God will not allow the pilgrim's foot to slip. This is treacherous walking. You know, your foot slips and you're sliding down the hill. Rocks and... and and animals and and, and the rest, I mean, this is dangerous. So this prayer for safety isn't theoretical, this is real. And it has an affirmation that with God we are safe. Look at verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Notice that God's protection of the pilgrim is, is tied to His covenant with His people, Israel. The Lord is faithful to His promises and the pilgrim can rest in this promise, which leads us to the next point, that you are safe, and that second, you are safe because God is faithful. Those in covenant with God who trust Him may be assured that He will keep them from harm. Now again, we're, we're, we're in the old covenant, I'm making applications here to the New Covenant. They're preparing for the Temple and the Old. God cares about that. And the New, because of the work of Christ and the pouring out of His Spirit, we have been made the Temple and the principle of preparation still applies. So as we gather, we want to be prepared. God's faithfulness here is to His Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you have these promises of one who would come, who would remedy sin, the law that hung over them, the law that they had broken, Uh, Our father and our mother, Adam and Eve, who had violated God, and as a result, paradise has been lost. There's alienation, there's death, there's disarray, there's destruction, there's dysfunction. And yet God covenants to His people and says, I'm going to fix this. He covenants with Abram that he would make a people, and that through this people, paradise would be restored. From among the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob comes the King David to to whom God covenants in the Davidic covenant that one would rest on his throne who would usher in this peace that would bring paradise back. And more than bringing us paradise, this would bring us back to the creator of said paradise, God himself, you see, where we would be made right with him. And this being made right with him isn't our doing. It's all about his promise. It's, It's all about his covenant. God is faithful. Those in covenant with God who trust Him will be assured that they will be kept from harm. Here the psalmist is reflecting on the physical harms of the journey to get to the place of worship. In our covenant we think of, uh, uh, of not the physical harms as much as we think about the eternal everlasting harm of punishment for our sin that we have been assured we will be kept from because of the work of Christ. Look at verse 7. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. The verb to protect or to keep occurs six times in these nine verses. It is a strong affirmation that the Lord is never indifferent to His people. To prepare for worship, the people focus their hearts and their minds on the faithfulness and the goodness of God, getting their eyes off of the pagan stuff in the hills, the wild animals in the the nooks, the stress of the journey for the joy of being together in God's presence, experiencing His peace and being reminded of His covenant. The next Psalm moves from this theme of protection to anticipation, and anticipation for this peace. Draw your eyes at Psalm 122. Here we have a prayer for peace in these Psalms of Ascent. It is interesting to note today at the side of the temple uh, and for those who've asked about when's our next trip, for obvious reasons it's on delay and our prayers are with the people of Israel. But when you are at the site of the, of the temple today, Psalm 122 appears there on the wall at the location of the temple in Hebrew. And, and here you are being reminded of this text that's sitting in front of you. Psalm 122 picks up where Psalm 121 left off. In the last psalm, they were preparing their hearts for worship by looking to God, and now the pilgrims are standing in the city of Jerusalem, recalling how excited they are to to be able to worship God together. Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem you have that feeling when you pull into the parking lot here? Yeah! <laughs> you know, or you're like, kids, get out of the car. Oh my gosh, we're late. Oh, hurry, get in there. Oh, is there coffee left? Oh, right. He's, he's, he's been prepared so that when he gets there, he's like, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. To experience the presence of God. You have it on your outline, number one, in his presence, the people of God are delighted to enter the Lord's presence to worship him. They're overwhelmed by being there. The verse speaks of standing at the gates. In ancient cities, the gates are often large areas with hubs for everyone to gather together for fellowship, preparing offerings, sacrifice to get ready to worship. You go through the gates, and that's where you meet everyone. That's where you prepare. That's where if you know, the animal you brought for sacrifice didn't make it, you can you know, get another one. You can wash off. There's ceremonial places for washing and preparing yourself. Verse 3, draw your eyes at the text. Jerusalem, that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. The psalmist acclaims the city as the spiritual center of Israel. This is the spiritual center where God is going to bring paradise back. The subject of the clause is then reiterated by an appositional expression, the tribes of the Lord. This clarifies that they are not just the tribes of Israel, but they are the tribes of the Lord. They belong to Him. The next part of the verse explains the reason they go. The Hebrew construction simply has the noun ordinance, the ordinance of Israel, and it serves to specify the reason to give thanks, which is worship. That's what you do when you are worshiping, you're giving thanks. The main purpose for the Israelites going to Jerusalem was to worship God, to give thanks. Notice the phrase, in the name of the Lord. In the original language here, we have the tetragrammaton. Tetra, the four sacred, the four sacred letters. yod He vav He. In English, it's Y-H-W-H. This is the name of God. The personal covenant name of God. Reminding the, the people that, that worship is only possible because of covenant. God came and he rescued you in his promises. You you weren't on your way to the temple all excited to worship him. No, no, no. you were were far from it. You were far from him. We read that in our public reading of scripture this morning in Ephesians. You were far from him, but he came and he saved you, praise God. And he put you in a covenant with him, a binding covenant with him. This brings us to number two on the outline. In His covenant, there is wonder over the setting of the place that God chose to meet His people in the city. And there is a hope for blessing there. The psalmist's attention is on this place, Jerusalem, that God chose in His graces to bless the people of the land and to the ends of the earth flowing from here. God told them that He would come to the land, establish a kingdom, create world peace, This hope for peace was the hope of the kingdom of God, that God's king would come and sit on the throne promised to David's seed. Draw your eyes at at verse 6. We read of the thrones of the house of David at the end of 5. And then in verse 6, what do we read? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The psalmist exhorts the people to pray for peace, for the sake of gathering together in worship. Can you see the passion for the worship in these psalms as they're preparing? This is just all preparation. This isn't even the, the main service yet. They're, 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 they're seeing this is really important. You prepare for things that are important. And it's really important when we get to get, get to be together as God's temple. And so they're preparing their hearts see on your outline. We have Psalm 15 and and Psalm 24, which are prayers for temple entry liturgy. Uh, Psalm Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. If you would turn to Psalm 24 first, I'll take you there. Moving from the Psalms of Ascent that the Holy Spirit uh, uh, inspired as they're journeying to the gathering, their hearts would be prepared. And then Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, along with Isaiah 33 you have these ancient liturgies that are given God's people as they're, as they're coming in. And we see in this the glory of God, as you have written on your outline. It is a serious and a wonderful gift to stand in the temple to worship the King of glory. Now, the temple harkens back to paradise being lost. The, the temple is a picture of paradise being lost. Woven into the instruments, woven into the architecture, into the tapestry of it, is a hearkening back to paradise lost. Uh, When our mother and father rebelled against God and they were cast out of paradise, they were covered by God. We read of a sacrifice of animal skins to cover them. And they go off in their guilt and shame. There is a death of an innocent life as they go off in shame. Now that is being reversed in the temple. As you approach the temple, sacrifice is presented outside of the temple. The blood of the sacrifice is taken by the priest into the picture of paradise into the very presence in the Holy of Holies of God. And all of that is looking forward to, this is all typological for the day when God would come and literally restore what they are metaphorically acting out in their worship. You pray for this peace. You have this picture of this peace, of this God who's going to reverse Paradise Lost and bring us back to Him in His graces. Psalm 24, verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Right? You can't just run up in there. Who can do it? Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. The psalmist is telling us who can enter the temple. The imagery and the language reminds us of Christ and the theology of Hebrews that teaches us about entering the presence of God by his sacrifice. The psalm in its context goes on to describe the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, The word glory is used five times in these verses, emphasizing what you have on your outline, namely the glory of God in the temple and the seriousness that not just anyone can run up in worship without coming prepared. Why? Why? Next point on your outline, because of the sinfulness of man. Only the blameless and the righteous are welcome into the temple of God. Now that is bad news for us who are blameful and unrighteous that we can't just run up on God because He's holy. His eyes are too holy to look on evil. And yet this, again, just keeps bringing us back to the gospel, the good news that God the Father sent God the Son to pay the penalty for us, to take our, our blame, to take our guilt, to take our shame upon Himself and to be sacrificed in the place of us. That God the Son would become a man so that He could experience death God the Son would become a man so that he could live a righteous life that we haven't to give that in exchange for us. That God the Spirit would pour himself out on sinful humans and draw them in repentance and faith to receive this great gift that otherwise we would not desire and we definitely don't deserve. Behold the triune God and his work of salvation to take sinners and invite them into his glory. Turn from... Uh, this psalm over to Psalm 15, this second psalm that you have on your outline here by way of temple liturgy. And in Psalm 15, you have this theme that you have on your outline here of the sinfulness of man. Psalm 15, verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? This echoes the words of Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? In this chapter, the psalmist makes clear that only the righteous may come. He speaks of social injustice, of God's displeasure for the reprobate, but his blessing on those who fear him. These temple entry liturgies reveal the glory of God and the fallenness of man. And just think about what Christ came to cleanse sinners that we may come to the Father. He entered, he entered in his ascension into the Holy of Holies in the heavens as our high priest. He offered the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, His own life, and He made us, His chosen, righteous and clean so that we could not enter a physical temple, but so we could become this spiritual temple in this age. And Christ sent the Spirit to baptize the church in Pentecost to make His followers His temple. Who may abide in your tent? Brothers and sisters, we have become His tent. First Corinthians chapter three, do you not know that you are the temple of God if the Spirit of God dwells in you? Wasn't that the point of the public reading this morning in Ephesians 2, speaking of the of the church in like manner, that we're the temple of God? It's the beauty when you're reading in a different covenant and a different dispensation of, about this, and then you jump over on the other side of the cross and you go, Wow, look at what Christ has done for us. From the vantage point of Psalm 15, the people come with sacrifice. They're unclean, they need covering. By faith, a credit was given to their sin, and the power of the Spirit would draw them in repentance and draw them in righteousness. And the righteous would come in worship and prepare themselves in the Old Covenant. And this practice from the days of the Old Covenant to the New continues on as we saw in New Testament texts. It's all about preparing your hearts as you come to worship. I hope this history and, and, and the sampling of Scripture this morning as, as we're wrapping the first month of the new year will just stir in us one, a joy for the gift of Sunday and it'll stir in us a renewed commitment that we need to prepare for Sunday. Conclusion on your outline there. Third, uh, we prepare for what and slash those we love. When you have a child, you prepare the nursery. When you get married, you prepare prepare for the marriage when you go in for an interview you prepare in school you prepare for a test we prepare what for what is important to us and who is important to us worship should be no different in the New Testament we saw verses about coming prepared to worship we read the language of purposing in our hearts in the Old Testament we see how God wrote whole sections of of, of, of scripture to help the people prepare we didn't even touch on the book of Leviticus this morning. That, that's an entire book that's talking about the seriousness of approaching God. And so, so as, if you have Leviticus in mind, you're reading these Psalms of Ascent, it, it really slaps. You really understand, oh, that's why. God's holy. He's holy. He's set apart. So as we prepare to gather in His presence, oh yeah, that preparation is really important. By way of conclusion, a couple of points that you have on your outline here. Preparedness in worship is a fruit of God's grace. He has graciously made us righteous, as I explained the Gospel to you. The Righteous One who takes our guilt and shame and just reverses it. Here's my righteousness, I'll take your shame, I'll die for it. He graciously makes us righteous. And it's nurtured by our wonder of Him among His people. The psalmist, as we saw, was filled with wonder over God, over creation. That wonder drives the passion of the psalmist as there's this anticipation of gathering with his people. The, the, the sacrifice and all of that reminds us of God's grace that He accepts the, this other thing that will stand in our place. And the psalmist comes with joy at the arrival of the temple. Preparedness is a, a fruit of God's grace. Be in worship, we are assured of the Father's love for us as we experience the fellowship of the saints, the ministry of the Spirit, and the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son for us. The psalmist knew that his foot would not slip. The psalmist knew that his father would not slumber. The psalmist tied his conviction to this, to the covenant that God made with Israel. The psalmist journeys with other worshipers and his passion and and, and his and his voice with others. We too have the fellowship of the saints by the Spirit of God, tying our fellowship together supernaturally, brothers and sisters. And it is because of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son. Substitution. One who stands in the place of another. Because of His death standing in our place and the gift of God that is given to us and secured in His resurrection and ascension, we are driven to gather together to praise Him. Like the survivors of a horrible event who will gather on the anniversary of that event to remember the horror and to celebrate what they were saved from, so too we gather every Sunday To remember how he was slaughtered for us and what he has done when he rose up that Sunday and secured our salvation, and what he is doing through that work every Sunday in 2024 as he is deepening us as a family and drawing us in his worship. Brothers and sisters, we will fall short, we won't prepare. We'll skip. We'll come up with excuses. We won't treasure Sunday as we should. We, we, we won't come the way the Psalms of Ascent or these temple entry liturgies. We, we, we're we're going to fall short in this. That said, we need to try. We need to mortify the flesh. We need to struggle in our sanctification. And when we fall short... We need to throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and behold the Christ who never was unprepared, who, who never came empty-handed and unready with His offering, who, who never came Sunday without fellowship during the week, who, who never came on, on Sunday without Scripture in His heart throughout the week. He's done everything for us perfectly, so when we fall, we just run to Him. And in His tender mercies and His graces, He sanctifies us. These Psalms were written for the people as they're coming to worship, as we, as we reflect on the canopy of the entire Scripture and we see that, we're drawn to the Christ that they didn't have. And we see His mercies for us. In worship, we're assured of the Father's love for us. The last and final point here, the natural and appropriate response before God is to gather with those he saved and join our minds in study, our bodies in holiness, our resources in offering, our voices in song, glorifying the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. This experience is real. We are the temple of God. So let us walk in purity. Let us be committed to using Sundays to show the value of our God together joining with the ancients who who died to give us this tradition and the values of weekly worshiping together on the day in which our Lord was risen. Sunday, modeled and passed down to us. As I close, what this looks like practically is it means that we have to give God our schedules more intentionally. We have to carve in margin in our week and especially in our weekend to make the local church a priority. It means being present and and from here, taking what you have learned in the sermon and experience in the fellowship of the saints through song and communion and offering and, and prayer and serving. And we take all of this that has happened on Sunday and we go into the week with it. Preparation means we will seek God to change us. We will confess sin before next Sunday. We will meet in fellowship with God's people this week before next Sunday. People in this room, together, we'll we'll get together, we'll pray, we'll apply God's Word. This is all a part of our preparation. We'll serve, we'll give, we'll love, we'll forgive, we'll weep, we'll laugh, we'll sacrifice, we'll share the Gospel. And as you do this then, that's what prepares you. You come hungry to receive and and ready to, to give. Very practically, it means not only our singing is not only on Sunday, but it's throughout the week. Not only our study is, it's not only on Sunday, it's throughout the week. Our praying isn't just on Sunday, it's throughout the week. And what happens in the week has this rhythm that leads us into Sunday. The more gospel sharing, the more giving, the more mourning, the more crying, the the, the more of that that we do during the week, when we gather, it just intensifies the temple. There is a saying that failing to prepare is preparing to fail. If you're not preparing, you will not experience what you desire. What did you hope to get out of together worshiping today? Did you prepare for it? If so, how did you prepare? If not, why not? Preparation is key. It's obvious that I need to prepare, right? If I didn't prepare, my sermons would you know, sound like those guys on TV, those freestyle preachers giving motivational talks, which is a shame and an indictment. Really, a judgment on the so-called church in North America, self-help preaching if I didn't prepare right what 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 would it look like? Now, I suspect that in asking that question, you know one might think, uh, well, you're the preacher guy, you need to prepare right uh, you, you know what if the what if the worship team didn't prepare? What if John Sarian just grabbed the hymnal five minutes before service and boom, that's what we're doing this morning, right? And, and Cameron's like, I don't know that one on my horn. And Leonora's like, ah, you know, and they, they just came up here and winged it or whatever. What would the music look like? We get that they have to practice, right? That they have to prepare. What would happen if they didn't? Or Children's Church this morning. What if, what if our director, what if our volunteers didn't, didn't prepare? All the hours that go into, this is what the kids are studying this week. These are the photocopies. This is the What if they just didn't prepare? What if they didn't do it? Right? What, what if, what if uh, you know, our sister Lucy wasn't running around doing like a million things for a Sunday morning? It's her communion. Do we have this? Do we have that? You know, did the air conditioner break? I don't know. I've been wondering for about an hour now. You know, what about the coffee? What about this? What, what's going on? Right? Where's the, where's the preparation? Let me ask you a personal question. That was a subtle hint, but let me ask you a personal question. If the preacher and the praise team... If the preacher and the praise team prepared the way you did for today what would our worship service look like if our sunday school and our hospitality prepared the way that you did what would it look like would there be no coffee no handouts no no sermon no powerpoints no songs no kids church kids just running everywhere People running down to A and P M to get coffee. Oh, I'll go get some coffee, right? Who's going to sing this morning? Where's Landon? I don't know. Somebody call him. So someone else volunteers. I'll, I'll sing something. Oh, maybe we'll try to get Landon down here. If you're not if you're not prepared, right? That's what happens. So parents, during the week, are you doing the catechism with the kids? Are you taking the handouts from Sunday and talking about them? Reading with your kids? Reading with your spouse? Those of you who aren't married and don't have families, you, you, you still got the catechism, you still got the stuff, you still you know go to a community group, share, all of this is preparation. I don't ask these questions, by the way, to create a guilt trip. Uh, rather to uplift God's righteous standard to draw us that we need His grace and to see this special creational rhythm called Sunday, that every week we get to enjoy. And that the triune God stepped into human history, and on that day, He rose from the dead. And by the power of His Spirit, He's been drawing us in worship. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, we've been eating that bread and and that fruit of the vine weekly on Sundays for 2,000 years, and we get to do that now. with covid everything went virtual and all the studies are showing how many people are just stuck in zoom and they haven't come back it's like you can't do virtual communion you can't really do virtual fellowship you need to be here and what makes here special is when we come prepared and as we come even if we haven't prepared then we behold the christ who has prepared everything for us he has set the table for us he has atoned for us he he loves us And he wouldn't have you leave here today feeling guilty about how you haven't prepared. But he would want you to resolve, and for me to resolve. Hey, start coming early. Be here for the public reading of Scripture. Start hanging out. Start fellowship. Start digging in. Let's prepare for God together. You know why? Because he's worthy. That's what worship is. It's ascribing worth. Isn't he worthy of me not being rushed? I'm preaching to the choir, man. I'm rushed almost every... You guys who are here early, you see me come in the side door, you know, oh, how much is left on the timer or whatever. This is is convicting me this week, thinking about this and studying this. We're real people in real life trying to exercise a real faith in a real God. So without further ado, enough talking about it. Let's worship Him. Let's celebrate communion together. Let's enjoy the remainder of our Sunday as we sing a couple of songs and respond to God's Word. And before we respond, let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you would send your Son to die for us. And as we fall short in so many areas, Lord, in our sin we can't even see them. We are reminded of your mercy for us and your remedy for us. Lord, that you would provide a way for us. Lord, as we come to the table, we are reminded of the cost of the way that was prepared. The blood of Your Son poured out on the cross of Calvary. A father, As a father myself, when my kids come running in the house with a cut and their blood gushing out of a wound, you, you hate seeing something like that. And for, for parents in this room who have lost children, oh, the pain of that. Father, that You would send Your Son to bleed out and to die as humanity spat upon Him and denied Him and mocked Him, it floors us. He is innocent. And through that death, we have been granted an innocence that is alien to us. And so we come to the table, we worship You. We come this Sunday with our, our offerings and, and, and our prayers and, and we present ourselves unto You as Your temple. Lord Jesus, as you cleanse the temple in Jerusalem in your earthly ministry, so too, Lord, cleanse us. Tip the tables that need to be uh, tipped over. Have your way with us. Sanctify us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.